freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree A seminar on freedom With Bill Ayers Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eileen, Roxana Espos, and Palace Shaw, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Aline for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. So, let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. As most of you know, the name of this podcast, Under the Tree, draws inspiration and wisdom from the freedom schools created during the civil rights uprisings and freedom struggles of the 1950s and 60s. Those fugitive spaces were sites where people gathered to name their political moment, to think freely about a world that could be or should be, but is not yet, and to organize an insurgency. The work continues. This episode is a conversation at Seminary Co-op Bookstore in Chicago between Bill and the intrepid peace activist Medea Benjamin that took place in mid-October. Caitlin Cass begins with an introduction. Medea Benjamin is the co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink. She is also co-founder co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange, the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, Unfreeze Afghanistan, ESIR, the Alliance for Cuba Engagement and Respect, and the Nobel Peace Prize for Cuban Doctors Campaign. Medea has been an advocate for social justice for 50 years. Described as one of America's most committed and most effective fighters for human rights, by New York Newsday and one of the high-profile leaders of the peace movement by the LA Times. She was one of 1,000 exemplary women from 140 countries nominated to receive the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of the millions of women who do the essential work of peace worldwide. She's the author of 10 books, including Drone Warfare, Kingdom of the Unjust, and Inside Iran. Her most recent book, co-authored with Nicholas Davies, is War in Ukraine. Her articles appear regularly in outlets such as The Hill, Salon, Common Dreams, and The Progressive. Medea is joined in conversation this evening by Bill Ayers. Bill is a distinguished professor of education and senior university scholar at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He's since retired, but has written extensively about social justice and democracy, education and cultural contexts of schooling and teaching as an essentially intellectual, ethical, and political enterprise. His books include A Kind and Just Parent, Teaching Toward Freedom, Fugitive Days, Public Enemy, and Demand the Impossible. With that, please help me give a warm welcome to Bill and Medea. Uh, let me begin by thanking Caitlin and the bookstore and Noor and the other 
staff who are here and underline one point Caitlin made, which is we're so happy to be back together after all the madness of the pandemic and which is still going on. But but one of the things that a store like this reminds us of is that the public space is disappearing. The public square is in eclipse. And when we have a place like this, a destination bookstore where we can come together and discuss ideas freely and be in dialogue and talk about unpopular things and popular things, this is a valuable, valuable asset for us as human beings, as citizens, as residents. And so I urge you to buy a book. You don't have to buy Medea, Medea's book, although I recommend that you do. You don't buy Medea's book, buy my book. And if you don't buy that, buy <laughs> Moby Dick. Um, but my point is that if you buy a book, that's a concrete way of supporting this valuable, valuable institution. And let's not let it slip away. So thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Noor. Thank you, everyone. Um, we're going to talk for a bit, and I'll say a word or two about Medea. She, She's going to talk. I, I urged her to talk short, and she said, I have to talk long because I'm so angry. So this is an angry woman over here, and she's growling. Uh, but before she speaks, I want to ask um, Danica Katowicz and Shay Levo to come up here. They are uh, Code Pink here in Chicago, and they have a word that they'd like to share with you. So, Danica and Shay. Hi, everyone. Hi. Thanks for coming. It's uh, so nice to see all your faces. I recognize a few of you. Hi, David. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. Um, got some local celebrities, Kathy Kelly, Bernie Yay, Thorne, Kathy. Andy Thayer. Uh, uh, Happy to be here with all of you. Uh, my name is Danica. I'm the national co-director of Code Pink. I'm based here out of Chicago um, with my coworker Shay. Hi. Um, we have a lot going on here in the city, uh, specifically, which is all really exciting. Um, we have a campaign on the north side to get our member of Congress, Mike Quigley, boo, to stop taking money from. Uh, the top five weapons companies. Uh, we have one of the lead organizers, Steffi, over there. Steffi, give a wave to everyone. Big round of applause for Steffi. And we're also trying to divest the city of sh Chicago from weapons companies. And I'll let Shay, the lead organizer on that campaign, oh, talk Shay. a little bit more about that. Um, yeah, I don't want to bore you all, um, but oh. <laughs> we're working on a resolution right now to divest the city's operating budget from weapons manufacturers. We are scheduled to have a subject hearing, um, ideally later this month, so if you're interested in getting plugged in, providing public testimony, or you just want to learn more about the campaign, come up to me afterwards or send me an email, um, but yeah, I'm super excited to be here. And if you're here with another organization and haven't met us, we would love to meet you and show up for your actions and support you um, in Code Pink's capacity and in our own personal capacity. So thank you. And you'll put a sign-up sheet. And oh, and there's a sign-up sheet going around. Thank you, Medea. Uh, it's on a it's on a clipboard. I think it went around the front already. It's in, it's in the back. If you didn't get a chance to sign it, just let me know. Um, it's signing up for Code Pink's uh, email list so you can keep up to date with what we're doing. Thank you, Danica. Thank you, Shay. So part of this conversation is going to be likely be uh, rebroadcast on my podcast. As my granddaughter said to me one day, uh, does every grown-up I know have a podcast? And the answer is yes. <laughs> um, but, but we may rebroadcast part of this under and under the tree. And we traditionally begin by acknowledging that we're meeting, we're broadcasting on the unceded traditional land of the Ojibwe, 
the uh, Odawa and the Potawatomi and many other indigenous peoples. And we acknowledge them, thank them, and acknowledge the history of stolen land and resources and the history of the great American genocide. And we promise to keep our hearts and our minds open uh, in our shared struggle for peace, justice, repair, and love. So I just say that because I think it's important to know who we are and where we are. Having said that, I want Angry Medea to take over in one minute and, and, and talk a bit about the book, which is an extraordinary accomplishment. Medea comes to her writing. She is a writer, an artist, an activist, an organizer, but she brings a critical mind and the absolute activist instincts and heart uh, of someone who really, really is passionately concerned about a fairer, more just, more balanced world. I have many, many stories I could tell, but one of my favorites is when we, for my 65th birthday, Bernadine took me to Egypt because we wanted to get to Palestine and we linked up with Code Pink. And we were outside the American Embassy demonstrating and we were surrounded suddenly by a group of thuggish looking people that made the Chicago police look calm by comparison. <laughs> and. Um, and one of our co colleagues, comrades, was coming out of the embassy, Ali Abu Nima, and they began to move on him. And Medea, without missing a beat, put him on the ground and laid on top of him. And Bernadine and I were trying to still think about what the hell was going on, and she already had the guy covered, and they backed off. So, Medea, congratulations to you. If you're, ever in a, if you're ever in a fight or a struggle, you want Medea next to you because she does shit like that. Okay, Medea, I'd like you to talk a bit about the book and about the issue at hand, and we will have a respectful but but sharp dialogue about that. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to stand up so you can see me. Um, and thank you so much, Bill. It's always just such a joy to come to Chicago and be able to reconnect with uh, wonderful activists and friends, and I'm so much in admiration of the work that goes on by many of you in this room, including my dear friend Kathy Kelly, and talk about peace activists. I mean, I feel she is the heart and soul of peace activism here in the United States. I wrote this book with my colleague, Nicholas Davies, because I was horrified when Russia invaded Ukraine. My grandmother, who's passed away, came from Ukraine, uh, like Zelensky, a Jewish, Russian-speaking Ukrainian. Um, I didn't see it coming. I should have. And um, when I saw the brutality of the invasion, I just felt like I must learn everything I can about it. I have been writing about the issue beforehand, uh, and come out with the book very quickly to be able to be in gatherings like this to talk about it. So I wanted to be clear that the first thing I feel is that the invasion is immoral, is illegal, and should never have happened. In the book, we try to set the context for it because I think that's what's been missing in the U.S. media. Not to justify it, but to understand it. And when you look at the background, 
it becomes so clear, especially when you read the writings of people like the present director of the CIA, who, when he was in Moscow in very different positions over the years, kept saying, the expansion of NATO is crossing a red line. This is going to lead to a conflict. We shouldn't be doing this. And person after person has been saying, we shouldn't be doing it. And then to also understand the role of the United States in the 2014 coup, which is quite remarkable given how the United States, well, many people in the U.S. have been talking about Russiagate for a long time and the U.S. and the Russian involvement in U.S. elections. And here you look at Ukraine and you see real involvement, hand-picking who was going to replace the person who was being overthrown. And then you see how NATO has really embraced Ukraine going back to 2015 by sending in all these weapons, by training 10,000 Ukrainian troops every year. Uh, and Zelensky himself has admitted that Ukraine is de facto a member of NATO. It just isn't de jure. It isn't uh, officially a member. And talk about provocation. Some of you might know that this week, yes, no, Monday, started these nuclear war games that are in Europe simulating bombing of, of Russia, simulating the annihilation of Russia. And when the NATO chief was asked about this, and asked if this is really a good time to be doing that. He said, well, we do it on a regular basis, and if we didn't do it now, it would be sending the wrong message to Putin. <laughs> so here we are um, practicing war games at a time when President Biden, for the first time just recently, actually talked about nuclear annihilation. Now, he didn't say it at a policy gathering where he wanted to talk to the American people about the great danger we're in now and follow it up with some policy changes. He said it at, does anybody remember where he said it? Fundraiser. A fundraiser, a democratic fundraiser in the home of media mogul James Murdoch. And this is where he talks about nuclear Armageddon. But at least he is mentioning nuclear Armageddon and I hope more and more people are realizing just how dangerous this moment is. I just started this book tour, and in the beginning of the book tour, I started in, in Massachusetts and went to a number of universities. And I found that when I talked about nuclear war, there were a lot of blank stares among the young people because they don't have any kind of history or understanding about what nuclear war might be. And those of us who are older in this audience, some of us grew up with the nuclear drills, how we had to run under our desks in school in case there was a nuclear bomb. But for young people, I think what they feel more threatened by is the climate crisis. And so we have to talk about nuclear winter, what it means to have a nuclear bombs go off, what it means for humanity and for the climate. And we also have to talk about other climate consequences of this war. 
because of the sanctions on Russia, the cutoff to Western Europe of oil, gas, and coal has not done what many environmentalists had hoped would happen, which is a quicker transition to green energy. There's not enough time for that. And so what it's been to the uh, great desires of U.S. big energy companies is calls for more drilling, more fracking, more dirty energy, more use of coal, stopping the decommissioning of nuclear plants that were going to be de decommissioned. And the other thing that's happened, and this I really felt when I heard and I listened to the General Assembly that happened in September when all of the heads of states of the world get a chance to have their 15 minutes uh, at the mic and tell the world what they think is important. And my colleague and I listened to every single one of those talks. And we picked out 66 of the talks that use their time to talk about the crisis in Ukraine and basically to say the message of, we are not taking sides in this crisis. For us, it's not about who is right and who is wrong. For us, it's about taking the side of peace. And that what is happening in Ukraine is not just killing Ukrainians, which is horrific, but it's having a ripple effect all over the world. And, you know, some wars just affect the local people. This war affects the entire world. So when you see that the grain that is not getting out or wasn't getting out in the beginning was affecting food supplies around the world, and Russian fertilizer, and who knew that Russia was the number one producer of food, food exporter of fertilizer, uh, that that is affecting farmers all over, especially the global south, and will continue to affect their ability to produce their crops, and how the price of energy and food has just skyrocketed in so many places around the world, um, that this is a, a global crisis. And so some of those uh, presidents of small island nations got up at the United Nations and they said, you in the wealthier countries had promised us back in 2010 that there was going to be a global climate fund with $100 billion to help our poor nations. In the meantime, 12 years has passed. You've only funded a tenth of that. And since the war started in Ukraine, not even a year has gone by, and you've given over $100 billion to that war. What about us? What about our lives? What about people in, in, in Pakistan, a third of the country, underwater? What are you doing for that existential crisis? And so I think we have to recognize that people all over the world are demanding that there be negotiations, that there be an end to this crisis. And I find when I say angry, I'm angry at the Russians for invading. I'm angry at the U.S. for not doing anything to push for negotiations. In fact, for doing just the opposite, for torpedoing negotiations that were going on right after the invasion, which is the time you know, that you can really come to an agreement is right after it's happened. And in March, late March, early April, when the Turkish government was mediating 
the talks and there was a 15-point plan that the Russians had proposed that was looked favorably upon by Zelensky. And then you see the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson of the UK, coming in to say, uh, no, we're not going to have a negotiations. What we, the collective West, are going to support you in this fight till victory. And then the message from the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who came and said, we're going, we need to weaken Russia so that it's not able to do this kind of thing. And once that message was given out, Zelensky said, we're pulling out of the talks. And instead of this idea that he had once said that he understood that Ukraine was going to have to be a neutral country and not join NATO, totally switched that, and as you have seen recently, is asked for a fa fast track to NATO. And what you might hear, and some of you might believe or hear from your friends or hear in the media, is that there is nobody to talk to in Russia. You can't talk to Putin. And this idea of negotiations is just silly. And I think we have to be able to answer that question, and there's a lot of answers to that. One is to say, try. And that it's the height of irresponsibility for Biden not to be talking to Putin. And let's see what comes out of those talks. If nothing comes out of it, then maybe you'll convince us there's nobody to negotiate with. But we want to see you try. And we want to see Anthony Blinken, who is supposed to be the top diplomat in the Department of State, talking to his counterpart in Russia every day. We want to see those talks happen. That's why you're in the Department of State. Otherwise, just go over to the Pentagon. Yeah, right. <laughs> and when you look at negotiations, there have actually been quite a number of talks going on. There's been talks to get that grain out of Ukraine and into the market, and corridors by land and by sea to get a lot of tons of grain out. There have been talks about getting the International Atomic Energy Agency into the Zaporizhian nuclear plant, and they're in there. There have been talks about prisoner swaps, and it's not mentioned in the media, and I did a lot of research and found out there have now been, just today is another one, 17 prisoner swaps. And just think of how hard it is to do a prisoner swap. The logistics of it, the trust that has to be developed to believe that your side is going to release the people they said they were and the other side as well and make it happen 17 times in eight months. So there are talks that are happening. And what I really want to just go into before we open it up is how angry I am at not only Biden, but at the Democratic Party. Because when the $40 billion for Ukraine was voted on, there was not one Democrat in Congress that voted against it. Not one. There wasn't Barbara Lee to vote against it. There wasn't Bernie Sanders to vote against it. None of the squad voted against it. None of them. 
And there were 57 members of the House, Republicans, who voted against it. There were 11 members of the Senate, all Republicans. Damn. Some of them voted against it for reasons that I would not be too happy about, <laughs> which was, we should be taking all the money and all those weapons and aiming it at China, because China's the real enemy. Yeah. And some of them said, no, we should be taking all that and aiming it at securing our southern border from the hordes of immigrants who are ruining our country. But others of them gave very good reasons and said, there are unmet needs here at home that we need to meet for our people. Other people, uh, other members of Congress said, this is part of runaway inflation that's affecting working families in my district. And it's not just the members of Congress who are calling for negotiations. It's people like Donald Trump. And I don't know how many of you have listened to Donald Trump recently talking about this, but it's quite remarkable. He not is only, only is using the social media, you know, he can't use Twitter, uh, but he has other social media that he's using. But he's going out to his rallies, and at every rally he's talking about this. And he's saying, we need negotiations. This war is only going to end at the negotiating table. If we don't do that, there will be World War III, and it might be the end of life on this planet. That's what Donald Trump is saying. He's also saying if he had been president, the war wouldn't have happened, and if he had were president now, it would stop. And you know why? Because he would talk to Putin because he would communicate. And he said, Biden refuses to communicate. And that is something that is resonating with his base. And also, I forgot to say, when some of these Republicans who voted against the uh, $40 billion were asked about it, they said, we voted against it because we were getting pressure from our base. And then you might have seen, raise your hand if you heard Tulsi Gabbard recently. So Tulsi Gabbard, for those of you who've missed this, um, you know, she was a member of Congress uh, in, in the military. She is still in the military. She ran for president. Does anybody remember when she dropped out of the race who she endorsed for president? Bernie Sanders. She endorsed Bernie. Uh, she has recently come out and said, I am leaving the Democratic Party because it's been it's being run by a bunch of warmongers. And she gives a whole incredible talk about this war and how the weapons companies are the ones that are running the show in Washington and how we need to stand up to them and stop the constant flow of people's tax dollars to enrich these weapons companies and keep a war going that is killing people every day. Now, she also said some other things that I found were very horrible about gay rights issues, about women's issues, about pro-choice, about immigrants, other things. But on this issue, she has been fantastic, and she's getting out, she's now campaigning for Republicans, and she's getting millions of hits on her uh, YouTubes, and she's on shows that are getting millions of hits. She's on shows like Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. And I don't know if anybody here watches Fox News, but you might want to Google 
uh, one of the uh, p uh, pieces on YouTube from Tucker Carlson, and it feels like something that I might have said. Incredibly good things that he's saying about the need for negotiations. Another Fox News guy, Will Kane, came out and gave a whole long talk about is supporting Ukraine in this war risk uh, worth the risk of nuclear annihilation? And this is what millions of people on Fox News are hearing. Now, I'm not saying this is the standard Republican Party line. It's not. They are as uh, the Mitch McConnells, the mainstream Republicans are as much supporting this war as the Democrats. But on the further part of the right, they are really making an issue of this. And yet here we have our squad, our progressives, who are falling in line with the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's and saying, don't say a word about this until after the elections. And I feel like they are giving this issue to the extreme right. And this is not only happening in the United States, it's happening across Europe as well. So I want to just end this you know, monologue part, we'll get in the discussion, by saying that I think this is a critical moment in history where we're not only facing, if we don't uh, face nuclear war, if we're lucky enough to avoid nuclear war, we're facing some really powerful shifts geopolitically and domestically. And that this is the moment that we as progressives have to rise up and demand that the people who are representing us, no matter what their party affiliation is, they have to understand that the American people, when they go to vote, their number one issue is? Nuclear war. No, nuclear war is like number uh, 25. It's the economy, the economy, the economy, and it's inflation. And this issue is directly tied to the economy and to inflation. So if we can't get them to care about the people of Ukraine dying every day, if we can't get them to care about the threat of nuclear annihilation, let's talk to them about the pocketbook issues, about the climate crisis, about the need for them to represent the real interests of the American people and the world, which is to quickly find a solution to this crisis. Thank you. I'm gonna, before we open it up, I want to just make one small note about negotiations and then ask you one question and then think of what you'd like to ask. We're going to put you on a microphone if you have a question. Um, a note. Uh, those of us who were part of the anti-Vietnam War movement, note, remember that we were negotiating for five years while the war tore on, killing 6,000 people a week. But they were still talking. Why these folks can't talk? Boris Johnson saying he represented, speaking for what he called the collective West, and saying you can't talk to somebody who's like a crocodile swallowing you. And Biden saying again and again in interviews, I'm not talking to Putin except about Brittany Griner. Well, I mean, that's insane. Talking is the only possibility at this point. And so I want to put just a note that even during the Vietnam War, at the height of the killing, they were talking. And this is not such a stretch. But say a word about where this talking question is in Congress, because there has been a movement to get 
you know, some of the Congress people to sign on to a resolution to negotiate, but it's pretty small. Yeah. Um, I can't see people if I don't stand. stand. Is that okay? Yeah, there, there will be a letter coming out very soon signed by some members of the uh, progressive uh, members of Congress calling for negotiations. It doesn't deal with the issue of weapons at all. I mean, basically it does. It says um, that in addition to supporting Ukraine uh, militarily, we should be having negotiations. So it might not be the letter that some of us would love, um, but it will be coming out soon, and that's one step forward. But what has been astounding is how difficult it has been to get members of Congress to sign on to that letter. And sometimes I feel so naive. Like, you know, when I read that letter, I said, oh, everybody's going to sign on to that, you know. Uh, and no, it's like the media and the leadership in the Democratic Party has made negotiations synonymous with appeasement right. and, and, and pro-Putin position. Right. So that has to be turned around. And even in uh, meetings in uh, Bernie Sanders' office, we had a hard time, even with his staff, talking about a similar letter that's needed in the Senate calling for negotiations. So I think it just brings back um, how difficult this moment is for us and that we're not doing our job. If the right-wingers saying they're hearing from their base, why aren't our people saying that they're hearing from their base? And maybe they're hearing and they don't want to listen because I know that there are a lot of people who are protesting at like Barbara Lee's office, Nancy Pelosi's office, and here I would hope, I mean, somebody might tell us if indeed it's happening here, um, but they're not listening. But Representative Jayapal initiated the letter, is that correct? And how many people have signed it today? About 27. Wow. That is sad, and it's a very, very mild letter. It doesn't call for cutting off aid or anything about military aid, right? All right, we are going to open this up for conversation, and I would like, we have a microphone. Do you have a mic? Should people come up here? We can pass it back, I think. Okay, if you would do that, that'd be yeah. great. So we have folks right in here, starting here. I, yeah. I can talk really loud. But we need it on tape, sorry. <laughs> so, um... I, number one, that letter, are the Republicans signing it? Okay, no, okay. Oh, and they're not signing it because the letter starts out thanking Biden for all he's done. Uh -huh. And so uh, why did you do a letter that was thanking Biden knowing you get zero Republicans on it? I don't know. Exactly, okay. And um, also, the I wanted to ask you about the general state of the anti-war movement in the U.S. Nothing's going on here in Chicago, Medea. Zip-Kathy. <laughs> um, well, we should do something about that, and um, we're going to have a good list after tonight to do something about that. Uh, you know, there's many reasons that the anti-war movement that uh, was so strong around the Iraq war fell apart, and of course, you know, a big movement that we had around Vietnam when there was a draft, and those who make these wars understand that it's uh, important not to have a draft. It's important not to have a lot of people fighting in the wars and dying on the American side uh, because that's what creates an anti-war movement. And that's why we have drone warfare and uh, the kind of proxy wars that we've been having. 
Uh, it's also because when there are Democrats in the White House, like when Obama came in, the anti-war movement really fell apart, and we saw how many people we thought were part of the anti-war movement that really were anti-war when it was Bush, but not when it was um, uh, Obama. And um, then wars just become part of the background for young people. The country's been at war since the time they were born. Uh, and the other thing I think is that people were really um, disillusioned after Iraq, that we got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people out on the street and we couldn't stop the war. And so uh, when you see how big and powerful this military, industrial, congressional, security, university, caucus uh, complex is, uh, how hard it is to influence it. Uh, people put their energies in things, where, in things where they think they can have more influence. And also the things that are perhaps more immediate in their lives, race issues, issues around police brutality, issues around the environment. Uh, and I'm sure we could talk about many more reasons, but you put that all together. Uh, and let me add one is that we fight with each other all the time uh, over you know who's got the best position on Syria or on uh, now about uh, Ukraine, and uh, that doesn't help create the kind of unity. And I think in building a movement to try to uh, call for a ceasefire negotiations, we have to really think about who are all the people who could be in a big tent, and whether it's reaching over to libertarians or it's reaching out to people in the environmental movement and connecting their issues. Um, there has to be a lot of work done, but I think there are a lot of people who would agree with us. I, thanks for coming here. Um, we started nuclear war around the corner. I apologize for that at the little football field for me. I don't know if you knew that. But you realize our House representative is one-third the size it should be based on population. 2.5 million people cannot be represented by one little Jan Schakowsky. We have to make it 1,500 in the House. They only get really that D word instead of what they're thinking. I don't think we should blame Russia for its actions because it was provoked by the U.S. government. The U.S. government agreed in 1990 that NATO would not expand one inch east of Germany, and instead it's expanded its warmongering uh, nuclear weapons possessing uh, activity right up to Russia's borders. It had the coup in uh, Ukraine in 2014 and uh, threatened to have 1,200 miles of border with Russia uh, have NATO forces with nuclear weapons. Uh, the coup established an anti-Russian government that banned the Russian language, that uh, attacked Russians in eastern Ukraine, killing 14,000 of them. And Russia made it very clear for years and years and years that the NATO expansion was an existential threat to the security of Russia. Now, the security of a country is in, uh, guaranteed by international law. The United Nations Charter, Article 51, talks about the security 
of um, nations and uh, poses a threat to nations. So the actions of Russia were a self-preemptive, self-defensive uh, response to the U.S. provocations, and because of that, they should not be blamed. The U.S. should be blamed for everything that's happened. Yeah, I mean, uh, thank you for your opinion. I disagree. I think that um, it was provoked but not justified. According to the United Nations Charter, you are supposed to deal with conflicts through peaceful means. That's why the United Nations was created. There's also the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Um, we, I think if we are peace people, anti-war people, we have to be against all wars. And um, we should recognize the provocations of our government, uh, recognize the lack of effort uh, on our government's part to try to end this war, but I also think it's wrong to justify the war. Yeah, I think I, I would like to just add that I, I think the phrase provoked but not justified, I mean, I think that we should be able to hold in our minds two ideas at the same time. Russia was absolutely wrong. There is no um, justification for this invasion. They should get out now. And on the other hand, we can see the context, which I think is one of the brilliant, uh, brilliant parts of, of Medea's book, is that she, she sets a context that's very, very important. And I should add here that Code Pink has a video that's 19 minutes long. If you sign up for this, we will send you a link to that video. You can use it in neighborhood meetings. You can use it in college classrooms. And it really explains the, the context in which this happens. And that context includes rebranding NATO as a force for peace. Nothing could be further from the truth. NATO is a warmongering operation. So, but we can hold both those ideas in mind, that Russia is not justified, but NATO is not a force for peace. Uh, thinking about uh, a political way to end the war, some people talk about cutting a political fig leaf, small enough for Ukraine and collective West to accept, but sufficient for Putin to deflect challenges at home. But considering the successful counteroffensive of Ukraine, Ukrainian army today, this idea seems to be foreclosed. So uh, what dynamic you can think about for creating space for this cutting or political figment for both sides? Yeah, so the, the question is about creating the political space for both sides to be able to come to an agreement. And uh, that is where um, we can think back about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's the anniversary right now, 60 years. And it was a time when we had two leaders, Khrushchev and JFK, who recognized the world was on the brink of nuclear war. They had to talk to each other, and they had to come up with a compromise. And it's interesting how it is portrayed or remembered in the U.S. is that Russia backed down and took its missiles away from Cuba. What is not talked about is that it was a compromise, and that the U.S. also removed its missiles from Turkey. And there was something that JFK said a year later that is so relevant today. He said, 
If you are in a fight with a nuclear power, never give them the option or, or back them into a corner where their only option is either a humiliating defeat or the use of a nuclear weapon. And that's exactly what we're doing today. So you are so right. Other people call it an off-ramp, compromise, whatever it is. And there are many things that have to be discussed and that could be compromises that could, could allow Putin to tell his population that they didn't lose everything in this war. And some of those things would be rights guaranteed for Russian speakers in Ukraine, uh, independent, internationally observed elections in the Donbass and in Crimea, uh, lifting of sanctions from the US part, uh, negotiations around arms reduction treaties that the U.S. had pulled out of and we need to go back into. Neutrality for Ukraine being the, the, the number one. So there are many ways to form compromises uh, that would be face-saving enough for Putin to feel like he didn't have to as back, being backed in a corner, use a nuclear weapon. I think this is such an important point to underline. Western analysts seem so happy, cheering for a major domestic crisis in Russia. And I think people should think, and maybe you'll say a word, about what it would look like if Russia imploded. Not only a major nuclear power, but a humiliated, angry population that, um, that then, in, instead of being supported, gets further humiliation. What does it look like if the, the kind of war monitors of the Democratic Party win this argument? It's a little terrifying. Uh, and what happens if Putin is forced to resign? Is there somebody more extremist who comes in? Uh, is there a civil war in Russia? What happens to all the nuclear weapons that are in Russia right now? It's very scary. And many of us don't like Putin. And we are scared about what is the end result that the U.S. wants when it says weaken Russia, what does that mean exactly? And so say a word again about what we here in this room and we who are listening to this, what should we do? What is to be done? What should citizens do? So I think we have to use every tool in our toolkit um, the most important one, I think, now is education, because we are up against a mass media that is really full of propaganda. And the, the message that's being sent is that victory for Ukraine is around the corner. Just send in more weapons, and they will be able to win back every inch of land that the Russians have taken since 2014 which is delusional. So um, we have to educate people. And that's why we have the book. That's why we have this 20-minute uh, video that we'd love if you could use, if you have access to showing it in any uh, university classes, to your faith-based group, to your community organization, in libraries. Uh, that would be terrific and get these kind of discussions going all over. We're also calling on people to go back to the old-fashioned house parties. Oh, yeah. Invite your friends over and use the video and talk about these issues. Education, 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 I'd say, is the first thing because we need to increase our numbers first.
And then I would say, at the same time, join things like uh, Code Pink or Peace in Ukraine. The Peace in Ukraine Coalition is coming up with actions uh, this week. They're about using social media together to focus on the nuclear weapons issues. We have days that we're focusing on uh, uh, contacting the corporate media and asking them and giving them a list of uh, peacemakers or people with a different opinion that we'd like to hear. Uh, you might have heard Jeffrey Sachs, for example, uh, fabulous on this issue and somebody with incredible credentials, although some blame him for the privatization in Russia that was so devastating to the Russian people. Uh, he says he can't get an op-ed in a mainstream paper and that when he was on, only got on to uh, TV once on Bloomberg News, and when he was asked about who blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and he said the rational response, which is, <laughs> they were horrified and said, Jeffrey, how can you say that? And quickly he was off and hasn't been asked back on. So we can push the media to have other voices, um, and we have a list of people that we'd like to have on in the, in the Peace in Ukraine website. We have flyers, we have uh, educational materials you can use. And then there also is the issue of um, our representatives, that we have to do that as much as we don't like it or as much as we're frustrated or you've done it before and it doesn't change their minds, we've got to do it. And I think whether it's call-in days, whether it's going asking for meetings in their offices, uh, or whether it's doing protests outside of their offices, we've got to make our voices heard. And we're also encouraging people to come to Washington and join us and get meetings there uh, in their offices with your senators, with your representative, and we'll help you uh, have places to stay, get those meetings. Um, so those are some of the things we have to do. Yeah, it's worth remembering, too, when people look back and romanticize the anti-Vietnam War movement, it took years to build, and we still didn't end the war. I mean, the war dragged on for 10 years. So, yeah, we can get frustrated and we can get burned out, but we have to kind of then rally, wake up the next morning, and try again. I mean, it's what else is there? And I think after the elections, we will find a lot more openings within the Democratic Party because they'll feel a little bit freer to speak out. And so if they hear from us, especially after the elections, I think we can have an impact. Uh, you can hear this conversation and others on Under the Tree, a podcast that's available on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Um, that will be... Uh, available to you. The last thing I'd like to say is where I began, which is this is an invaluable institution. I want you to definitely buy a book before you leave and support the wonderful work that goes on here. And thank you to Caitlin and thank you to Noor. And especially thank you for to Medea Benjamin for joining us tonight. Thank you. So let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Airco, to my co-conspirators Light Ali and Roxana Espos, and to Palace Shaw for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, with joy in my heart and freedom in my mind. Until next time.
We have a special bonus episode being released this week that we hope you will have a chance to listen to, especially if you live in the Chicago area. Join us for a conversation with Maya Dukmasova and Charles Preston of Injustice Watch as we talk judicial elections, do elections matter, and how Chicago voters can make an outsized impact on the justice system.